I don't want to be a minister during a world war. Surprise. <laughs> Yet this is something I had to seriously consider during my vacation. No one should have to consider it, let alone when one is trying to relax and renew, but there it is. In fact, I find that I think a great deal about war all the time these days, and not just because of what is happening in the Middle East. Because I insist on staying abreast of global news, I unfortunately stay informed about global conflict. It's a lot to carry. As someone who lives from a place of spiritual motivation, I am in a constant psychological posture of prayer, and I'm overwhelmingly preoccupied with directing that prayer toward armed and violent conflict across the world. Bombings in Nigeria, gang violence in Central America, environmental violence in Australia, informational violence in Russia, and economic violence here in the United States. No one is safe. War has evolved into a constant, everyday oppression, and we are numb. No, I don't want to be a minister during a world war, but apparently I am. Martin Luther King Jr. was as well although he didn't put it in so many words. Some of his most powerful writing and speaking came as his life was about to be extinguished, when he began more boldly speaking against the war in Vietnam and about poverty. King struggled mightily with what it meant to be sending soldiers to war who then would return home to places where they could not eat, or learn together because of racism, or where they would return to poverty, not unlike what they had seen in Southeast Asia, if they returned home at all. The massive disconnect between a wealthy nation and the usurious nature of how we chose to defend ourselves was an enormous affront to him. His anti-war stance lost him many supporters. Dr. King delivered the Passion Sunday sermon at the National Cathedral on March 31st, 1968, and as I mentioned with the reading, it would be his last public worship service. It's titled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. It includes a lovely, if not cute, story about Rip Van Winkle falling asleep with a picture of King George at one side and then waking up with George Washington, replacing that image. For my personal and literary and scholarly tastes, this is not actually King's most cohesive or persuasive sermon. Yet, it includes some of his favorite and most quoted lines and language. He speaks directly of a poor people's campaign. He references the way in which 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour in America. He references how the arc of a moral universe is long but bends toward justice. It's kind of a greatest hits message. He also frames moral injustice, injustice as violence and draws a clear parallel between the war in Vietnam and the poverty that drags on specific populations in the United States. For him, there is no difference between the two. King says of poverty, 
There is nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. The real question is whether we have the will. He goes on to say about the war in Vietnam, I'm convinced that it is one of the most unjust wars that has ever been fought in the history of the world. Not only that, it has put us in a position of appearing to the world as an arrogant nation. And here we are, 10,000 miles away from home, fighting for the so-called freedom of the Vietnamese people when we have not even put our own house in order. That could have been written yesterday. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did not want to be a pastor during a war, but he was. I don't want to believe that human beings are addicted to war. There are those who will say that humankind will always have war and conflict. Just yesterday, I was listening to a historian of the Massachusetts at Ponkapog tribe describe the early conflict between the Massachusetts people and the pilgrims, as well as the conflicts that emerged between tribes to curry favor or defend themselves against the English settlers. Looking back through this history, back through the histories of people from across the globe, there is this strong tendency toward conflict. But I wonder if we have been approaching the solution to conflict wrong. This might be part particularly true for modern conflict that is almost entirely financial and wealth-based and is heightened because of technology and how we now live through media and electronic connectivity. When I look at the ongoing seeds of war we have here in the United States, racism, income inequality, sexual violence, sexual oppression, etc., I have to ask myself, what is, the, what is different now than 20 or 30 or 50 years ago? Then I remember. Email. Facebook. Instagram. 24-hour cable news, smartphones, and much more. We were told that with this technology, we could connect to other people with less effort. The world would be made smaller. The global village would dominate. We would be given the opportunity to craft and share the image of our lives with millions of people. We could construct the ways in which we belonged without any of the conventional methods. We would be liberated. But that also meant we could be free to other each other and tell each other that we don't belong in new and unimagined ways. Even in 1968, Dr. King spoke of how technology was shrinking the world and also how it raised new challenges to us as human beings. He said, in that same sermon, through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. But somehow, and in some way, we have got to do this, he says. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will perish together as fools. 
This is where I believe we are in grave danger. Fifty years after King spoke those words, we may be fighting the traditional human battles over land and resources, but the newly evolved battle over belonging, as amplified through technology, is something that none of us is truly equipped to deal with. Our individual and highly personal sense of how we fit in the world has now become something that is monetized, cultivated, curated, and yes, weaponized for and against us on a mass and an immediate scale. Our very basic sense of belonging to community, family, and even the human race, has been given a mechanized shape and form, and it is drawing new battle lines that we have only begun to recognize. We hear news every day about deaths of despair, where people take their own lives or kill others or embark on the long-term slow death of addiction due to a sense of hopelessness and isolation, a sense that they don't belong or have no right or validity in this world. We're horrified on what seems like a weekly basis by people who create mass murder and chaos because of agendas and manifestos that come from a defensive place of belonging or a need to belong to some kind of hyper-aggressive cult. Chants of you will not replace us send shivers down our spine. Gangs are not just on the rise, they are gaining new power and momentum and blotting out a generation of young people. The global epidemic of violence against women has been given connective tissue through the technology that makes an attack in Mumbai look shockingly like fantasy pornography that's produced in Van Nuys, California. But three years ago, a global women's march used the same media and technology to offer a powerful counter-narrative to the state of things. Then it became smaller and then this year smaller and smaller still. The National Archive has transformed one of the most important images of that march into a defanged statement on crowd control. And the curators who themselves are women believed they were justified. They have since corrected that error. Black Lives Matter drove the news cycle and droves of people to the streets and dominated the narrative on race three years ago. Now leaders from that movement are mainstream commentators on cable news while the grassroots organizers are mired in lawsuits and trying to rebuild their lives that have been shattered sometimes by false accusations from conservatives who labeled their work and their goals as domestic terror. The water protectors at Standing Rock have all but been silenced by being jailed and literally bulldozed over. Though small numbers of native and indigenous people continue to fight and defend their land at Standing Rock and countless other locations around the country, including here in Massachusetts, as they have done since the beginning of European infiltration. My point is this. Whether you are a white supremacist in the White House or an indigenous woman struggling to keep sane while being held in sanctuary in a church, we are all looking for a way to belong and a place and a people 
to belong to. The challenge, the war, exists in the battle for who has the loudest and longest voice to keep our attention. Still, I have to believe King's words. However dark it is, however deep and angry feelings are, and however violent the explosions are, I can still sing, we shall overcome. We have never been here before. Just as enslaved people the day after emancipation had never been there before. And like former slaves, we may be on the cusp of blessed liberation or the brink of a totally vulnerable annihilation. But what we have to remember is that we have a choice. We have a choice to passively accept what is happening in our world, making the assumption that someone else will lead us, carry us, direct us to freedom, or we can take matters into our own hands and create our freedom. I say, let us take charge and create our freedom. The song is not, we might overcome. It is, we shall overcome. It is a declarative statement of inevitable truth. And this truth begins with how we belong to each other. It begins in the home when you look at your child or your partner or your pet or you remember a departed loved one and say, I belong to you. It expands to include the people you encounter in places like this church, where you have full permission because of our covenant and our shared commitment to say to the person next to you, I belong to you. It then expands outside of these walls and enters a room of strangers who welcome you for the first time and allow you to say, maybe not in words, but in how you humbly and honestly accept their welcome, I belong to you. Belonging takes practice. Belonging is something that every human being on this planet needs to feel. Belonging is the gift we give to each other, absent of conditions and politics. Belonging will be important to us as long as we exist, long after technology is irrelevant. And I know this because belonging mattered long before we had technology. Let us honor Dr. King by truly remaining awake through this great revolution, the re revolution of belonging to one another and a world that shall overcome. May it be so. <laughs>